Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loya, your host. Hopefully your fasting and penance is going well. That's right. Remember, we are in the period of the fast, kind of spiritually cleaning house. And the best way to do that is through prayer, fasting, works of charity, and don't forget the sacrament of confession. Sometimes people ask me, how often should I go to confession, Father? Well, as often as needed. But if you want another type of rule of thumb, we like to say in the Eastern churches that we go to confession at least during the four major fasting or penitential periods, the very least. Absolute rock bottom would be once a year during the Great Fast. Of course, that's the season of the Great Lent. But at least four times a year. But if really you need to have a more specific schedule or timetable, that's what I would say to you. However, it should be actually more often than that. It should be as often as needed. The great saints would go to confession very often in the monasteries, every day, every week. So, the least we can do is go as often as possible. I'm not talking about being neurotic about it or scrupulous. Just talking about what is right. Confessing our sins before God, especially before we receive the Eucharist. Today on our program is going to be a bit of a potpourri. Just going to jump around through some various aspects of Eastern spirituality. After all, that is one of our missions here at Light of the East. It's, a, of course, a mission of unity between the Eastern and Western lungs of the Church. But in pursuing that mission, we emphasize in particular the gifts of the Eastern Churches, and in particular their spirituality, which, as you know, if you listen to this program for any amount of time, is a spirituality that is very liturgical and very mystical. So a sacramental or liturgical worldview living in the both and, the mystical, is really what summarizes the strength of the genius of Eastern spirituality. The spiritual life itself was defined by the great spiritual masters of the East as basically spiritual warfare. That's right. We war against not only the forces of evil, but we war against how those forces of evil have hurt ourselves. In other words, our fallen passions. 
passions are good in and of themselves. They're like energy or drives towards what is good, true, and beautiful. Passions like like desire, desire for God, desire for what is good, true, and beautiful. But those passions have a fallen side to them because of original sin. So we war against the tyranny, the power, not of our passions themselves, but of the fallen side of our passions. And in the Eastern spirituality, basically in regard to the spiritual growth and the spiritual life, this spiritual warfare, you had two basic approaches. One represented by what we might call the Alexandrian fathers. That's Clement, Origen, Evagrius, St. Basil the Great, St. Gregory Nazianzus, St. Gregory Nisa, and so on. These were saints that were, well, very practical. They were, of course, very mystical, but they were also rather specific. In contrast or in complement, there's also the other Eastern saints, which are more of what we may call the affective or mystical fathers. In fact, in the Greek word, it's called theodidacts. In other words, they would learn and teach by a more direct experience of God, a mystical experience, and also what we call an apophatic experience. Sometimes you hear that word thrown around, but it's actually a very rich word. It means to come to know something by what we don't know. In other words, God always remains beyond all description, all analogy. There's more that we can say that he is not than what he is, because he always, always remains so much greater than any description, any category in our part. Ever have that experience where you say to somebody, you know, it's hard for me to describe. You just had to have had experienced it. You know, you, you know, you have like a very profound experience, especially a, a, a joyful one or just an incredible one of any kind. And we grope for words or analogies of how to express it, and oftentimes we can't. So we end up telling a person, I, I generally can't explain it. I just know what happened. It was very real. It was very extraordinary. Well, multiply that many times, and you have really what the spiritual life is in terms of our relationship with God. And some of these affective or mystical fathers were people like St. Simeon the New Theologian, Pseudomacarius, St. Mark the Hermit, St. Diodicus of Photike, and St. John Climicus. Many of these you've heard on our program before, especially St. John Climicus with his latter divine ascent. And in trying to achieve or move through the spiritual warfare of the spiritual life, we have certain goals in Eastern churches, and those goals in Eastern spirituality have, well, they're described maybe some unfamiliar words like perichoresis. That means the indwelling of the Holy Trinity. Our goal is to unite ourselves with the very life of the Trinity. So the Trinity, in a sense, is infused in us, and we into the Trinity. This is called perichoresis, and also theoria theologica. That means God's pure infusion into us. And this happens through what might be commonly known as grace, God's grace, but these likes to use the term uncreated energies. Uncreated energies. In other words, the energies of God. Think of the sun. The sun is so powerful, we cannot even look at it for very long. We can't even get near it. We would just be destroyed because it's so great, not because it's bad. But things extend out from the sun, which we, of course, call rays, and those rays are part of the sun. It's just that they're not in the essence of the sun. They're not in like the very center of the sun, that burning ball of gases in the solar system we call the sun. Things extend out, like the sun itself extends outward from itself. Well, that is something which we might call grace, or in the Eastern churches, this uncreated energies. And these energies come 
into us. They touch us by means of the sacraments, by means of our choices to choose against evil, to choose good. And that particular aspect of spiritual life, of choosing good over evil, of saying no to ourselves, to our fallen passions, is called kenotic, a kenotic or self-emptying practice. It's also, another word is also praxis, which means the practice kind of sounds like what it means. Praxis means to practice, the practice of the spiritual life, the practice of this kenosis, this self-emptying, this dying to self. And in its place, we contemplate at all times God, who is infused. He has infused himself in every dimension of his creation by means of the incarnation. So we come to a knowledge of God. We come to a union with God through this practice of self-emptying. This Another, yet another word would be asceticism. I mentioned to you today was going to be kind of a potpourri. <laughs> I know it's a lot of terms. Perichoresis, theoria theologica, uncreated energies, kenosis, contemplation, and now asceticism. Asceticism means what we should be doing right now before the Feast of Peter and Paul, and that is fasting and prayer and increased charity. In the process of our growth and holiness in the spiritual life, this spiritual warfare, we have some other terms, theosis, divinization, deification. This is our ongoing growth into our real selves. So we oftentimes think of sanctity or holiness as something that's outside of us, like it's something that's added to us if we're good enough or special, or maybe God has set us aside to pour special blessings upon us. Well, it could be true, but holiness in the Eastern spirituality means this theosis, this divinization, this deification, meaning becoming more and more, think of it as evolving, constantly evolving into more and more of our true selves. Because the starting point in Eastern spirituality is a very, very positive theological anthropology. I know, another big term. It means, it means the theology of the human person, of man, mankind. And in that theology, the starting point is, as Genesis says, the book of Genesis, that we are made in the image and likeness of God. Now, we never really lose that totally. We certainly do not lose the image of God because we have body and soul and spirit. We've lost the likeness because of sin, but we try to gain back that likeness through this spiritual warfare and all of the practices of the spiritual life. But we never lose the image. Never. We are always first and foremost, images of God. That is our starting point. And the spiritual life really is about, well, like a return to who we really, really are. It's not becoming something we're not. It's becoming something that we always were meant to be. And we started out being, Adam and Eve did at least, before they sinned. So, praxis is the how of that. And we have to try to move beyond things like phalautia. Now, there's another Greek word for you. <laughs> it means the turbulence of self-love, the tyranny of the passions. And again, we do that by prayer, fasting, increased charity, and the sacrament of confession. When we return, we're going to move more through this potpourri of Eastern spirituality. I am Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Every day, Father Loya posts a brief two-minute Facebook video on the Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish homepage. You'll be amazed at what you can learn just by watching. 
Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. The Tabor Life Institute, which is dedicated to the formation and education in the theology of the body. To find out more about the Tabor Life Institute, you can go to TaborLife.org. That's TaborLife.org. Especially if you're interested in conferences and retreats, in particular for youth, young adults, and also for those of you who speak Spanish. That's TaborLife.org. I'm Loretta Freilich of the Catholic Charismatic Renewal of Chicago and Pentecost Today, and you are listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Pope John Paul II once said, Humanity, its dignity and its balance, at every moment and on every place on earth, will depend upon who he is for her and who she is for him. I am Father Thomas Loya with a Theology of the Body moment for the Tabor Life Institute. Why are we a man? Why are we a woman? Unless we know the why, we do not know the how to be man or a woman, and therefore we do not know how to really be for each other. The why behind being a man or woman is told in the theology of our gendered bodies. Our bodies speak a language. Gender reveals God. Through gender, we can actually participate in the way that God loves us. We can love as God loves. Human sexuality is an icon of the very interior life of the Holy Trinity. To find out more about the theology of the body, visit TaborLife.org. TaborLife.org. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host. Moving through a potpourri of Eastern spirituality today, I mentioned that the fathers of the Eastern Church, the spiritual masters, are drawn upon a lot in the Eastern spirituality, especially the, the monastics. And I mentioned there's basically two kinds. There's the Alexandrian fathers, the ones that were a little bit more didactic, a little more concrete, and then those who were more the mystical. But to give you an example of what we turn to, we turn to oftentimes the, the, the wisdom of these monks. For example, here's a little story. A lot of this wisdom comes about in the form of stories of the monks, things that they said, things that they experienced that were examples. So again, another gem of Eastern spirituality is this reliance on monasticism, which John Paul II said is the reference point for all the baptized. Here's an example from the elder Barsanufius of Optina. That's right, Barsanufius of Optina. The question is, what is chastity? We were talking about the passions and the fallen passions. So what is chastity? In Zedonks, there labored the ascetic George, who was well known in his time. Early on, he realized all the vanity of worldly life and went on to a monastery, but was not satisfied even with this and chose for himself absolute solitude, reclusion. Here he spent his time in fasting, prayer, and contemplation of God. But temptations did not leave him. When he was still in the world, he had loved a girl with a pure love, and her image often stood before him, disturbing his state of spiritual calm. 
Once, sensing his helplessness in the struggle, he cried out, O Lord, if this is my cross, give me the strength to bear it. But if it is not, then erase the very recollection of her from my memory. The Lord heard him, and on that very night he saw in a dream a young maiden of uncommon beauty clothed in gold raiment. In her gaze there radiated such unearthly majesty and angelic purity that George was unable to tear his eyes away from her. And with reverence he asked, Who are you? What is your name? My name is Chastity, she replied, and the vision came to an end. Coming to himself, the ascetic offered up thanks to the Lord for bringing him to reason. The image he had seen in his dream was so ingrained in his mind that it completely erased all other images. Now, what's really interesting about this is that it has a tremendous insight to a lot of things. One of those is actually into male spirituality or the male brain, the male psyche, which is really very, very visually spatially oriented. Men have great challenges with images, especially trying to keep images pure in their mind. This is one of the reasons why pornography is such a great danger to men, to their psycho-spiritual life, and in turn to their families and so on. Because images tend to sear themselves in a man's brain, more so than in a woman. So it's interesting that Elder Barsanufius, long time ago, had this insight about images in the mind. And this, what the story does is it shows how the images that are not life-giving can and should be replaced by other images. So it's all about images, it's all about those visual images that are in the mind. They, they come through the eye, of course, the window of the eye, but also then they find their resting place on the mind and eventually the heart and soul of a man. So a good way to move beyond impurity and try to retain chaste thoughts is to try to look at things that are holy and have those images replace or dominate over the foul and sinful images, the unchaste images. And this is the value of iconography. That's why iconography is so valuable and so relevant. It's a holy kind of imagery which, when gazed upon, does transform the mind. Our mind is actually physically, even biochemically, altered by imagery. That's right. And so icons then become a source of holy imagery, a source of harmony and all that is good, true, and beautiful visually. And so to gaze upon icons, to be surrounded with icons, to pray before icons, to have icons in our homes, in our car, our room, by our computer, everywhere— is a very, very helpful thing when it comes to our purity and chastity. In fact, I've heard it recommended that for men who struggle with pornography, especially being tempted by what's on their computers, it's recommended they put an icon next to the computer. Because as your eye sees that, it's less likely than to want to go to the sinful images. So an interesting insight, long time ago, yet totally relevant. Now here's a story of humility. A monk once asked Elder Macarius how to be saved. St. Macarius answered him, Go to the tombs and attack the dead with insults. The monk wondered at the advice. However, he went, as he was told, and cast stones at the tombs, insulting the dead. Then returning, he told what he had done. Macarius asked him, Did the dead notice what you did? And he replied, They did not notice me. Go then again, said Elder Macarius. Again, Macarius is an elder monk. And this time, praise them. The monk, wondering yet more, went and praised the dead. 
calling them righteous men, apostles, saints. Returning, he told what he had done, saying, I have praised the dead, Elder Macarius. I have praised the dead. Elder Macarius asked him, Did they reply to you? And the monk said, They did not reply to me. Then said Elder Macarius, You know what insults you have heaped on them, and with what praises you have flattered them. Yet they never spoke to you. If you desire salvation, you must be like these dead. You must think nothing of the wrongs men do to you, nor of the praises they offer you. Be like the dead. Thus you may be saved. In addition to the monastic tradition of the spiritual life, as I mentioned before, the other pillar of the Eastern spirituality, and one that helps us on our spiritual life, is the way that we pray, especially liturgically. And we do so with what is characteristic to the East. We do it with what's called dogmatic hymns, which are often presented in the form of allegories, allegorical meditations upon, for example, the Mother of God. For example, in the Old Testament, there are many, many references which are actually foreshadowings or types or allegories of the Mother of God, and we use those in a liturgical text. These are stories such as Genesis chapter 8, verses 10 to 17, Jacob's ladder. Remember where Jacob had the vision of people going up and down a ladder that stretched from earth to heaven. Well, that ladder becomes an allegory for the mother of God. Also, Genesis chapter 37, the story of Joseph, in which there's a, the story of Joseph, in which the reference to the stars, the sun, and the moon, all of which are referred to in liturgical typology to the mother of God. Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush. Remember what happened there in that story? The bush was on fire with the presence of God, though it was not consumed. Sound familiar? Sound like the mother of God? Yes. God was within her. How can God be within somebody and they not be consumed? Remember we had the analogy of the sun before? How can we look at the sun or come close to the sun without being consumed? Well, same thing with the burning bush. But with the case of the mother of God, it did happen. God himself was within her. Imagine the uncontainable God contained within the womb of a virgin, yet she was not consumed. Also, of course, the Ark of the Covenant, 1 Samuel chapter 4. And the Holy of Holies in 1 Kings chapter 7, which is again referred to in Hebrews chapter 9. The Holy of Holies into which only the high priest would enter. Sound familiar again? Yes, the mother of God, only Christ the high priest entered into her. And in doing so, she still remained a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ. Judges chapter 6, Gideon's fleece. And once again, First Chronicles chapter 13, the Ark of the Covenant that no hand could touch. And when someone did try to touch it, in fact, his name was Chusa, he tried to steady it as it was falling off the donkey that it was being carried on. And God struck him down dead because he ordered everyone to keep away that no hand could touch the Ark of the Covenant. Again, that's an allegory for the mother of God. Well, we can go on with many of these kinds of things. But we mentioned also this practice of fasting, ascetical discipline. And we have many, many references in the scripture to fasting. And fasting is something that animates our prayer. It, it gives it greater strength, greater sincerity. Oftentimes, when athletes are going to prepare for a great athletic event, they will abstain the night before or before the event itself. Other people that are going to face or accomplish great things or take part in great events oftentimes will abstain from things as well because it's a way of getting focused. It's a way of 
cutting away anything that's excessive and being able to focus on what is absolutely most necessary. And this is what we do when we fast. We cut away a lot of the excess access. Let's face it, we do have a lot of excess indulgence in our lives of all kinds of things, in particular food. And when we cut away that in the appropriate way, it does help us to focus. It's a reminder of what we're supposed to be focusing on. For example, in the Eastern tradition, it is a common practice to abstain from meat on Wednesdays and Fridays, not just Friday, but also on Wednesday. And every time you do that, let's say you go to the refrigerator, you're going to grab that piece of meat and make a sandwich. And you say to yourself, oh wait, it's Wednesday or Friday. Well, automatically you're being made mindful of Christ. You know, the events of his trials, betrayal, his suffering on the cross, that's why we abstain on Wednesdays and Fridays. So already the fasting becomes a meditation, a prayer, an instantaneous mini-retreat in itself. Fasting has many, many blessings. It's, it's a powerful thing, and it is mentioned throughout the Scripture, especially in Exodus 16 and Exodus 34. Remember, Moses fasted for 40 days on Mount Sinai. Many dimensions, many blessings to the practice of fasting, and all these add up to our theme today, spiritual warfare the potpourri of the spiritual life in the Eastern Christian tradition. Thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit ByzantineCatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. This is Father Wade Menezes of the Fathers of Mercy and host of EWTN Radio's Open Line Tuesday. Heavenly Father, we ask that this Lenten season prove grace-filled for each one of us, allowing for a humble examination of self that is Christ-centered and which fosters a greater awareness and love for the three eminent good works of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh!